what is the logical causal order of faith and the new birth. Does the Bible tell us if the new birth comes before or after we believe? And does it matter? It matters. And I'm going to explain why in just a few minutes. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in 1 John 5, titled The Nature of Saving Faith. In the profound conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that to have eternal life, one must be born again. But what does it mean to be born again? This is the doctrine theologians call regeneration, which means that the spiritually dead sinner must be made alive by a powerful work of God and God alone. The Bible teaches that without it, it's morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. So how do regeneration and saving faith interact with one another? And why do we, as Christians, need to understand these great theological realities? Let's find out together as we join our teacher now, here on The Word Unleashed. If you're a Christian, you know you are not the same than the person you were before. We were dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1, and God made us alive. That's a definition of what it means to be a Christian. Christian's not somebody who turns over a new leaf, not somebody who decides they're going to be a better person. Christian is not someone who decides they're going to live by the ethics of Jesus. Christian is someone that God has given life to. There's a third crucial insight in verse 1, and this is really the main point that he's leading to and that I'm leading to, and that is the role of the new birth the role of the new birth. You see, look again at verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. In in this amazing statement, John explains the relationship between your saving faith, the faith in which you believe the gospel, and the new birth. You see, saving faith always accompanies regeneration. That's clear in this text. The two come as a package. You never find one without the other. Nobody will ever believe the gospel who has not also experienced the new birth. And no one will ever have a new birth without believing the gospel. But in verse 1, John makes a more profound point about the relationship between, between faith and regeneration. He answers a key question about what we will call the order of salvation or the logical order in which the elements of salvation occur. Now, I'm taking you into a theological issue here. Stay with me. It's going to be worth it. Theologians refer to this question as the order of salvation, or in Latin, the ordo salutis. The order of salvation or the ordo salutis. Now, the ordo salutis deals with two things. First of all, it deals with the chronological order of events relating to salvation. A biblical ordo salutis helps us understand that election happened in eternity past. That progressive sanctification is happening right now. And that glorification happens in the future. That's an ordo salutis. I understand when those things are happening. The order of salvation and how, they, how and when they unfold. 
But the Ordo Salutis also deals, listen carefully, with the logical and causal order of events that occur at the moment of salvation. You see, we talk about being saved, and that's true, but do you understand that at the moment of salvation, biblically, theologically, six separate events happen to you? At the moment of salvation, here's what happened. Number one, there was the effectual call. That is, God, through the gospel, drew you to himself. It's called the call. At the end of 1 Corinthians 1, talks about those he called. He used the gospel to call you to himself. Number one was the effectual call. Number two, at that same moment, regeneration. You were given new life, the new birth. Thirdly, at that very same moment, you were given repentance and faith. You repented of your sins. You believed in Jesus. At that same moment, number four, you were justified. You were declared right with God. God looked at the the life and death of Jesus Christ, and he credited your sins to Christ and treated Christ on the cross as if he lived your sinful life, and then he credited Jesus' righteousness to you and now reckons you to have lived that perfect life. That happened at the moment of salvation. Number five, There was definitive sanctification or positional sanctification. This isn't progressive sanctification, being increasingly made like Jesus. This is momentary sanctifications. When God set you apart to himself, the moment of salvation, he said, you're mine. And number six is adoption. At that very moment of salvation, God the Father adopted you as his own son or daughter. All of those things happen in a moment of time, simultaneously. At the same time, scriptures teach us to think about those events from a logical and causal order. For example, chronologically, faith and justification occur at the same moment, the moment of salvation, right? Faith and justification. But the Ordo Salutis teaches us That biblically and logically, faith must come before and be the logical cause of justification. Why? Because everywhere scripture says we are justified by faith. So even though justification and faith happen at the same moment, the one is logically the cause of the other and not vice versa. So that brings us to the question, what is the logical causal order of faith and the new birth in the Ordo Salutis. Does the Bible tell us from the standpoint of logical causality if the new birth comes before or after we believe? And does it matter? It matters. And I'm going to explain why in just a few minutes. But the Bible also does tell us. And 1 John 5.1 is one of those places. Look at it again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, in the Greek text, John intentionally uses two different verb tenses. Believes is in the present tense, and born is in the perfect tense. Faith and regeneration, faith and the new birth, occur at the same moment in salvation, but these verbs teach us a logical, causal order that's important. Again, look at verse 1, and let me literally translate it for you. The one continually believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born out of God. 
The one believing has been born out of God. Now, there are some who argue that those verb tenses could still simply mean that all Christians have both faith and have experienced the new birth, but not that one came before or caused the other. But John doesn't leave that as an option. Because John uses exactly the same construction in only two other verses. And in both of those verses, it's clear that he intends a cause and effect relationship. That the new birth is the cause of the other verb. Let me show you. Go back to chapter 2, verse 29. Everyone who practices or is practicing, present tense, righteousness, is born. Here again is the perfect tense. Has been born of him. Everyone who is practicing righteousness has been born of God. Now look at that verse. Practicing righteousness doesn't cause the new birth. Nor do they just come together. Instead, John clearly means in context here that the new birth causes us to practice righteousness. It's like Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So, causal, clearly. Same construction. Being born again is the cause. Now go to one other. Chapter 4, verse 7. Everyone who, again, present tense, is loving is born, again, perfect tense, has been born of God. Now you tell me, does loving other believers cause us to be born again? Of course not. Rather, his point is, the new birth causes us to love others. Now go back to our text, exactly the same construction. The one believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born out of God. Friends, our faith is not the cause of the new birth, but the consequence of the new birth. God first made us alive, and then, at the same moment in time, we responded in faith to the gospel. John teaches this same concept back in the first chapter of his gospel. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Now notice received, past tense, that speaks of the first expression of faith as the instrument at which we first appropriated Christ at the moment of salvation. Believe is in the present tense. It speaks of the constant reality of faith as the instrument by which we continue to appropriate Christ throughout the Christian life. So verse 12 then is talking about faith. Now look again at verses 12 and 13. Here's a literal translation. The ones who are believing, these are the ones already having been born, not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but by God. Those believing have already been born of God. Again, regeneration precedes the exercise of saving faith. You see, you would never have believed the gospel if God hadn't first made you alive. It's exactly what our Lord taught in John chapter three, verse three, when he said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In in Matthew 19, Jesus says this is equal to being saved. So what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is that only those who have been born from above can see with the eyes of faith the kingdom of heaven. So 
Again, the new birth comes first. And then you believe. Logically, causality. They happen at the same moment in time. Don't lose track of that. We're talking about logical and cause. There's also a key theological reason that the new birth has to logically precede faith. And that is our depravity, our moral inability. You see, apart from Christ, for example, Scripture teaches that we can't even understand the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. You would never have understood the gospel. You could never obey God as a natural person. Romans 8 says that. Romans 8, 7 and 8. You could never please God in any sense. Romans 8, 8. But here's a key one. Without the spiritual life given in the new birth, you could never have come to Christ for salvation. Here's what Jesus says in John 6, 44. No one, universal exclusion, no one can come to me He's talking about come to me for salvation in context. Unless, here's the one exception. No one can come to me for salvation unless the father who sent me draws him. The word draws means to compel. It's actually used in a couple places to talk about dragging someone to prison. No one can come to me. No one has the capacity, the ability, is the Greek word he uses there, to come to me unless the father draws him. So when you look at the text of Scripture, it's clear not only that regeneration, the new birth, does in fact come before faith and cause faith, but it has to. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. That's the key text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you tell me, how much can a dead person respond to anything? That's by definition what makes death. I worked in a funeral home when I was in seminary. I lived there for a time. And let me tell you, what defines a dead person is a complete and total inability to respond. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He goes on to describe just how bad it was. We were enslaved to the spirit of the age. We were enslaved to Satan and false religion. We were enslaved to our lusts, verse 3. At the end of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. It's because of this, John Murray writes, without regeneration... It is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. Here again is is John MacArthur and the Master Seminary faculty in Biblical Doctrines. While regeneration and faith, the new birth and faith, are experienced simultaneously, regeneration logically precedes faith and is its cause Sinners do not believe in Christ in order to be born again, but rather are born again unto believing. That's what the scripture teaches. Now that brings us to the question, does the order of regeneration and faith really matter? Tom, come on, isn't, isn't this just like the, the theological debate in the Middle Ages of you know how many angels can stand on the head of a needle? No. This is crucial. Let me give you... Several practical ramifications 
of the fact that regeneration precedes and causes saving faith. Several practical considerations. First of all, number one, it destroys our pride and produces humility and gratitude. You see, when you understand, when you really come to grips with the fact that when God found you, you, like me, were completely dead and had no ability to respond, and if God had left you alone, you would never have responded. But instead, by grace, God made you alive, and he gave you faith, and he gave you repentance, and he he saved you by his sovereign grace. When you understand that, you will be overwhelmed both with humility, because you'll understand you had nothing to do with it. It's what God did. And you'll be overwhelmed with gratitude, because you'll realize The only reason you have life is because of God. You were dead but God. This is important because of what it does to us spiritually. Secondly, understanding that the new birth causes us to believe. Secondly, it shapes our understanding of the entire doctrine of salvation. You see, everybody who has any knowledge of Scripture has a basic order of salvation etched into their understanding. It may be right or it may be terribly flawed, but it's there. Why is that? Because we, by nature, systematize things. This is just what we do. I mean, your bedroom, the drawers in your dresser, your, your closet, your garage have storage systems. The fact that they're bad storage systems or that they're completely incomprehensible to other human beings doesn't change the fact that there is, in your mind, a system. The same is true with salvation. You have organized the parts of salvation as you understand them into a system. It's just the reality. And if this, if the order of your system is wrong, then it produces a man-centered faith and not a clear biblical understanding of what salvation is. It matters. It matters. Just like the system of your closet matters, the system of your understanding of the Christian faith and how God saved you matters. Number three, it affects our approach to evangelism. You see, if you believe that man initiate salvation. If you believe that man is the first to act in the process of his being saved, then where are you going to center your efforts in evangelism? On somehow persuading, encouraging, convincing, even manipulating that person into faith. Today's seeker churches use manipulative methods for the very same reason. They believe that man initiates faith and therefore I've got to do whatever I can to try to trick them, manipulate them, convince them into believing. But if you believe that God is the first to act in salvation, that it's the new birth, that God alone can do it, and in the scripture that he only brings the new birth through his word taught and understood, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to sow the seed, you're going to present the word, and you're going to leave the new birth to the Holy Spirit. You'll be content with the scripture. Number four, properly understanding the relationship that new, the new birth comes before faith. Number four, strengthens our peace and assurance. 
I can tell you this at a very personal level. I remember when, as I told you, I was saved as a, as a senior in high school. It was as a senior in college that I first came to understand the truth I'm preaching you today. And the way I came to understand it is through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And the Holy Spirit just turned on the light. I, I got it. I saw it. Yeah, I was dead. And yes, God made me alive. And let me tell you, when that happens, I was already a Christian, been a Christian for four years, but when that happened, there was a new and fresh understanding of my assurance and my confidence in Christ. Why? Because I didn't initiate my salvation, God did. And the same will be true in your case. If you can grasp this truth, I will promise you, it'll bring a fresh appreciation of the assurance you have in Jesus Christ. Number five, it provides our hope of perseverance and ultimate glorification. This really connects to the one before it, but a separate step. It provides our hope, really it's the foundation of our hope of persevering in our faith through this life and ultimately being made like Jesus Christ. You say, why is this such a hope? Well, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, my hope of being, of making heaven, my hope of ultimately getting there is not about me. It's not about something I've done, something in me. It's the fact that God began a good work in me and God's not going to stop until he finishes it. I know I'm going to make it, not because of me, but as we sing, he will hold me fast. He began it and he will complete it. Number six, If you have not been born of God, if you're not a Christian, what I have taught reduces you to a spiritual beggar who can only plead with God to show you his grace. In other words, when you understand that you can't sit there and just make a decision, I'll just do whatever and I'll, you know, I'll wait. Maybe the end of my life I'll do, I've got some other things I want to accomplish first, whatever. If that's how you're thinking, you've got this entirely backward. Because only God can give you spiritual life to believe. And where that leaves you is what Jesus said at the very first of his message in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the beggars in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What I've taught you reduces you as it reduces everyone in this room who's a true Christian. It'll reduce you to a beggar where all you can do is say, God, I have nothing. I have nothing you want. There's nothing I can do to earn a place with you. There's no way that I can make this happen. God, please save me. It's like Luke 18, verse 13, where Jesus tells the story of what real saving faith looks like. It's, the, it's that tax collector in the story he tells, where he can't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he's beating his chest. And what is he saying? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It reduces you to where you and I ought to be, and that is as beggars before God, knowing we have nothing God wants. There's no way we can earn our way into his favor. All we can do is ask God to be gracious. And number seven, it gives God ultimate glory. Understanding. This gives God ultimate glory. You see, if you believe that you initiated your own salvation, then guess what? It's easy to think that you really deserve some of the credit for how bright you were, how humble you were, how obedient you were to the gospel, and that robs God of his glory. 
This is an insidious problem. In fact, it's such an insidious problem that it, it prompted Spurgeon to say it this way, such is the depravity and fallenness and pride of the human heart that if it can't earn its entire way to heaven, it wants to have a small part in the last mile. That's just how we are. We want to contribute. But if we understand that God is responsible for the first mile in the new birth, and he's responsible for the last mile, our glorification, and every mile in between, then guess what? We will glorify him. You were dead. And God, by his own free and sovereign grace, made you alive, will cause you to glorify him. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, The Nature of Saving Faith. Tom will have part three for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Ecclesiology is the branch of theology that is concerned with the nature, constitution, and functions of a church. In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it's critical to recapture what the Bible teaches. Purchase your copy of Tom Pennington's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting us online at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. God's truth.